Turn your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 6 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. I have to say, I've never liked how the editors have set apart uh, the sections in the New King James, because verse 6, they put with verses 1 through 5, at least in my edition. So, verse 6 should go with verses 7 and following. So, we'll begin reading at verse 6, Judges chapter 2. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim in the north side of Mount Gaish. When all their generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hibites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Amen. 
Well, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. I'm not really good at riddles, so I'm very pleased when the Lord tells us in Scripture what the book is about. Certainly we see this in John's Gospel. We see the main thesis at the end. I write that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As we've seen in 1 John 5, I write that you might know you have eternal life. And then in Joshua 21, 43-45, God was faithful to all that he said he would do for Abraham. He fulfilled all his promises. Not one word has failed. And that's exactly what we see here in Judges chapter 2. Judges, in a lot of ways, is a larger thesis. It's more of a summary of the cyclical nature of the book of Judges. We see Israel's degeneracy into sin, and then we see a summary of Yahweh's deliverance by way of these judges. So we see that uh, summarized here for us in Judges chapter 2. Now remember the historical setting. It is after the death of Joshua, which we'll highlight a little bit more uh, under our first point, but also it's after the book of Joshua as well. Remember, Deuteronomy is that foundation for the people of Israel. It was the law that God uh, made with them, the fleshing out of it, especially to that second generation before they enter into the land uh, regarding Israel and God and, and what pleased the Lord and how Israel was to have a good life in the land. It was based upon that Mosaic uh, covenant, a covenant of works concerning life in the land with sanctions that are tied to the land. If you do what is right, you'll receive good things. If you do what is wicked, uh, you'll be kicked out of that land and receive judgment. Joshua is a positive entrance into the land with that fulfillment of Abraham's uh, the promises to Abraham. And then we come to judges. How will the people retain the land? And so the main ideas are the degenerating sin of Israel, but also, more importantly, the salvation of the Lord, the so great salvation that he brings to an undeserving people who are not seeking him at all. And so the problem is very clear in this chapter. It is a disobedient people, but especially we see how quickly Israel degenerates into sin. They disregard Yahweh very quickly. They disregard his covenant, and they degenerate quickly into all sorts of harlotry, spiritual and physical, to the point where we actually see at the end of the book even though it's the end of the book, it actually happens very quickly under the, when Phineas is still alive, that they have a civil war. We start in Judges 1 with some semblance of unity, but by the end of the book, and even though it's the end of the book, we know it actually happens very quickly where Israel is no longer united. So uh, Israel degenerates into wickedness, but what Israel's degeneration uh, helps us see is it makes Yahweh's deliverance all the more remarkable. It really is a so great salvation for a people who have no regard for the Lord. And so in Judges 2 and 3 tonight, we see the summary of Israel's descent into disobedience and the summary of Yahweh's deliverance. So the summary of descent and the summary of deliverance, and those are my two points this evening. We'll see Israel's descent into disobedience, Verses 6 through 15 of chapter 2. That's Israel's descent into disobedience. And then we'll see Yahweh's deliverance uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2 to the end of uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. So Israel's descent, Yahweh's deliverance. Let's first look at Israel's descent into, into disobedience. And notice we see when leaders die. And the context, or at least the literary context... Uh, we just have seen the angel of the Lord come up to the people. The people have engaged in some sort of conquest to go and possess the land. Remember, one way in which they were to retain the land is to honor God most high. And one way they had to do that is to finish the job. 
Make sure they kick out all the other nations. Otherwise, those nations are going to be a snare. But unfortunately, Israel does not do that. They don't devote the nations to destruction. Rather, they put them under tribute. Rather, they dwell amongst them. And we even see this in the book of Joshua as well, even though Joshua is primarily positive. And so we see the southern kingdom, or not the southern kingdom, I'm getting ahead of Israel in Israel's history, but the southern tribes, they do pretty well, but there's still some issues. But the northern tribes, not so well. We see that in verses 27 through 36 of Judges chapter 1. And then the angel of the Lord, which I pointed out is Yahweh, he comes and he speaks to them and says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I never broke my covenant with you, but you have made a covenant with the nations around you, which you are not supposed to do. And so then Israel has tears, Israel cries, Israel sacrifices. But what will it be? After they cried and after they sacrificed, they then should have went and burned all their idols. They then should have went and said, okay, how are we going to take out the rest of these nations? But unfortunately, we do not see that. And the, uh, the continuation from verse 5 is what we see in verses 10 and following. But sandwiched there, in the middle, we see a reference to Joshua and his generation. And so verse 6 does not follow chronologically from verse 5, but it's drawing our attention back to Joshua after the covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua 24. They must be reminded of Joshua's last words. They must be reminded of Joshua, uh, Joshua, Joshua said to them and what they said they would do. God made this covenant with them. uh, And we see it renewed in Shechem in Joshua 24. And all the people say, yes, we will serve. Yes, we will serve the Lord. Yes, we will do it. We are witnesses against ourselves. And yet things start off well with Joshua, but then things degenerate very quickly. And so Joshua also gives warning in Joshua 23, you must drive out the nations, you must obey the Lord. And if you do not, the nations themselves will be a snare to you. And so with Joshua, things are well. We see uh, verse six, Joshua had dismissed, that is from Joshua 24, the children of Israel and uh, each went to his own inheritance to possess the land. So they go back to their inheritance. And then after that, we see what happens in Judges chapter one. But then we see a positive uh, reference in verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. They had served the Lord under Joshua. They served the Lord under these elders who knew and saw what the Lord had done, who knew and saw the exodus, who saw the crossing of the Jordan, who saw the battles that the Lord had won for the people as they entered into the land. They saw all of these things, and thus they communicated that, they taught that, and things went well for this generation. But then Joshua dies. And what will be of God's promises? And what will be of the people of Israel? Verse 8, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash or Gaish, depending on how you want to say that Hebrew, it's Gaash. Uh, but when, uh, but uh, he's buried in his inheritance. And after he dies, things degenerate quickly. 
after the elders who outlived Joshua die, uh, outlived Joshua died, things degenerate quickly. Verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Not that they had never heard of the Lord, not that they never heard of Yahweh, but they just didn't care. They had no regard for the things of God. They had no regard for what God had done in the past. They had no, it didn't mean anything to them when it should have. The one generation saw it, now the next generation heard about it, but it didn't mean anything to them when it should have meant everything to them. The, 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 the tradition, the, the truth should have been handed down, but it was not. The people had other things in mind. The people wanted to be like the nations around them. The people are, again, uh, functioning like mercenaries. And we, uh, we've seen this in the book of Hosea, how the people just want things from the gods. They just want things uh, from the deities to be able to have good livestock, uh, good crops, and good families. And so they go and um, try to manipulate the, God, the pagan gods, or even Yahweh, to try and get what they want. And so this, this generation that arises does not know. They have no regard for the things of God. So things degenerate very quickly. And so Joshua dies, positive things before he dies, but after he dies, things degenerate. And then we see that degeneration in their disobedience beginning at verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The people have forsaken God, verse 12, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It is a past grace. It is a reminder of what God did for them in the Exodus. They were a people in slavery. God, uh, they cried out to God in their distress. God hears them, Exodus chapter 2. He remembers his covenant with Abraham and he brings them up out of the land of Egypt. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't save you because you're a mighty and wonderful and righteous people. I saved you because I'm a good God. And I have saved you because I'm a gracious God. Even in Exodus 34, as God reveals himself to Moses, he says he is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice, but he is a God of grace and mercy as well. And yet the people once again trample on the goodness of God. Yahweh has been good to them, and yet they forsake him. They quickly go and serve the Baals. They quickly forget what God had done. They have no regard for the Exodus. They follow other gods from among the, uh, from among the gods of the people, verse 12, who are all around them. I mean, the, the concern is realized, isn't it? That was the warning. The nations all around them. If they don't deal with the nations all around them, then what's going to happen? They're going to serve the gods of the nations. And that's exactly what they do. They, are provo- they, they serve the gods of the people. They bow down to them. And they provoke the Lord God to anger. And we see in verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now remember, Baal, or Baal, if you want to be Hebraic, uh, is the god of fertility. And so, again, fertility is important. Again, crops livestock, and land. And what the Canaanites thought regarding how they got good things and how they received fertility is that it required the god of fertility to copulate 
or to fornicate with his consort, namely Asherah. So they needed Baal and Asherah to engage in intercourse. And so how you got them to do that was by mimicking it. And the hope, is, the hope was that when they did that, it would kind of, I guess, egg Baal on to do that sort of thing in order to get rain to fall from heaven. Davis says, but the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was, serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as part of their worship. They treated the God, they, they, they assumed and thought of these gods just like humans. And they could be manipulated and be manipulated in a very debauched sort of way. And this is what they forsook the Lord for. Because they wanted crops, they wanted livestock, they wanted family. And so they saw what the Canaanites were doing. And the Canaanites probably said to them, Davis kind of has a little blurb on what the Canaanites would have said to them. Yeah, you can serve Yahweh too, but here's some secrets on how to get rain and livestock. You do it this way. You do it instead. And even by the time we get to Hosea and the other prophets, it's not that they have completely done away with Yahweh. They just worship Yahweh among all the other gods. Again, they want to make sure they, that they have all their bases covered. That's why the second commandment is vital. We worship God according to what he said. We, certainly the first commandment, no other gods before us. But certainly the second commandment is who we worship and how we worship. And so the, they were saying that, yeah, we can worship Yahweh, but we're going to worship in any other way. And we're going to worship Baal. We're going to worship Asherah. We're going to worship all these other gods. And we haven't even got to Hosea yet. And here we're already we're seeing that. We're already seeing that amongst the people right after they get into the land. The people of all of Israel have always been a stiff-necked people. Again, the people of Israel are a picture of depravity. Their wickedness, their stiff-neckedness, their, uh, their vileness, and the ways they violate God's covenant. So verse 13, they forsake the Lord and serve Baal and the Ashtoreths. They forsake the Lord God most high, the God who had redeemed them. And Psalm 106 recounts this very thing. They do not drive out the nations from among them, and instead they begin worshiping like the nations around them. The Israel was supposed to be different. And so they forsake the Lord, and thankfully the Lord is faithful to what he said. The Lord is faithful to the terms of the covenant, and that includes being faithful as one who punishes. And we see that in verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He's not a nonchalant God, is he, that way? He's a jealous God. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Remember in Joshua 7, after Achan took a little bit off the top, Remember, he took the, the part of the spoil that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. And then it said Israel could not stand before their enemies. It's because they were treacherous. What one man did uh, affected the whole people. And a lot of the people now are being treacherous. God fought for them. God was with them. But when they do not do what is right, they cannot stand before their enemies. A lot of the judgment that we see, you know, it's a fleshing out or an, um, uh, fulfilling of what we see in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 as far as the cursings uh, that are promised 
if Israel does not do what Yahweh says. So they can no longer stand before their enemies. And verse 15, it is Yahweh who brings the calamity. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. Notice, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. Our God is a God of faithfulness when it comes to his mercies and his blessings, but our God is also a God of faithfulness when it comes to his justice as well. And that's exactly what we see uh, as he executes his punishment upon the people. So he had sworn he would do this. He does it. They didn't listen. And notice they were greatly distressed. And as we're going to see, this is not holy remorse. This is not repentance. This is just they don't like the result of their sin. They don't like the pain that they are enduring. But yet they are still not going to turn to Yahweh, which we will see when we get to verses 16 and following. But all of this is meant to teach us, the whole book is meant to teach us how quickly sin can take over. How quickly sin can escalate and build. You know, there's a reason in the Bible sin is called a slavery. Or we're slaves to sin. Or we once were slaves to sin for a reason. It is something that shackles. It is something that takes over. It is something that keeps making problems worse and worse and worse. Now, thankfully, we're in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. We are freed in Christ. That's why redemption language is so important. You know, it's emancipation. We were once in shackles. Now we are redeemed and no longer in those shackles anymore. I mean, all that redemption language in the New Testament has Exodus in view, being released from slavery. And so we praise the Lord for that very thing. That's why we love the new covenant. We love the old. We love what we can learn under the old. But we are not under the old. We are under the new, a covenant that cannot be broken. Now, that doesn't mean we don't still struggle with sin, right? That doesn't mean we uh, don't struggle with remaining corruption. And in James 1.12, he talks about we have desires. We still have those desires, things we see. And even sometimes we move towards that thing which we should not. We see something that we want. We perceive it as good. That's why we have to have a talk with ourselves, right? And say, but the, God, uh, the Bible says, God says that's not good. So I should not move towards that very thing. But it starts with that desire and then it builds into an action. And then eventually if one is not in Christ, it leads to death. But sin is referred to in scripture as tyranny, uh, as a slavery and certainly we see that with the people of Israel. But another thing that sin does as well is it destroys our view of God. The people think that Yahweh is just like them, only a little bit bigger. But that is not true at all. I mean, if they copulate, then Baal's going to copulate. I mean, they're thinking he's kind of like them. But he is different. David says, Yahweh has no wife, no consort. Biblical religion holds that you will find Yahweh acting in history, not pulsating in nature. Yahweh sits on a throne high and lifted up from which he rules, creates, preserves, and redeems. He does not lounge in some celestial bedroom, copulating with his feminine divine counterpart. It has become so difficult for us to grasp how different, how holy the God, the God of the Bible is. He is holy other. He is God we are man. He is not bigger, uh, bigger than us or just a higher uh, degree than us. He is God and we are man. He is holy, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. 
And the people of Israel forgot that. I think sometimes we can forget that. Sometimes we can make God in our image. Maybe we're not viewing him or thinking that he has a celestial bedroom, but we can still make God in our image rather than recognize we've been made in his image. We are the very image of God, but God is uh, the original. God is, uh, we are not God, but God is God and we are man. So sin degenerates, sin is heinous. It tramples on the goodness of God. It blinds our hearts and uh, hearts and minds. It's a slavery. It's just an awful, wicked, terrible thing that just brings misery and pain into this world. And it brought misery and pain to Israel as well. So that's Israel's descent into disobedience. Let's then look secondly at Yahweh's deliverance. 2.16 to 3.6. Yahweh's deliverance. Boy, I love some of the juxtaposition in Scripture. I mean, we see it with Hosea, how awful they are, and then here's how gracious God is, and the same thing is true with Judges. Here's how awful Israel is, and here's how gracious God is. And so notice we see, nevertheless, some of the best words in Scripture are the transition words, but nevertheless. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. They're not judges in the way we would think of judges, but they're warriors. Certainly they execute justice by redeeming Israel out of the injustice that they are receiving from their enemies. And certainly they would administer it for a while as well. Uh, but the main thing is they're raised up to deliver the people. They're warriors. They're mighty. And as we'll see, they got a whole lot of problems as well. But nonetheless, they are still types of Christ. They are still men of faith, whether we like that or not. I mean, they're in Hebrews 11. A lot of them are in Hebrews 11. Barak's in Hebrews 11. Samson's in Hebrews 11. Uh, they are men of faith, but they are also types of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the deliverer, uh, the ultimate deliverer who would come and save his people. But even in this time, Yahweh raises up these ones, these ones who will deliver them out of the hand of those who plunder them. Gil says, these were men that God raised up in an extraordinary manner and spirited and qualified for the work he had to do by them, which was to deliver the people of Israel out of the hands of their oppressors and restore them to their privileges and liberties and protect them in them and administer justice to them, which was a wonderful instance of the goodness of God to them, notwithstanding their many provoking sins and transgressions. I mean, that's one thing that is very clear in this book. The people of Israel are not seeking Yahweh. Even when they're sent into captivity, most of the time, they are not seeking Yahweh. Yahweh sends a judge. And what does it say? Verse 17, the people never listened. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and they bowed down to them. Here come the judges. They delivered them, but Israel still will not listen. They turn quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. God raised up saviors and deliverers, but Israel still walks in their ways. But then the author goes on to highlight further the goodness of God in verses 18 and 19. And when the Lord raised up judges, the Lord raises them up. He sets them apart. The Lord was with the judge. That is overarching. Again, we like to rip Samson. You know that he's my friend. I love Samson. I think we give him a bad rap sometimes. But we must remember the Lord was with 
Samson, was he not? The, Samson was by himself, even when he took a wife of Timnath, the Bible says it was so that he had an occasion to go against the Philistines. I mean, the Lord was with him. The Lord helped him. The Lord aided him. The Lord guided them. That is what governs the rest of this book. Yes, they have issues. I mean, Jephthah, Rashval, Samson's got his issues. I don't deny that. Gideon, you know, some power trip that he goes on towards the end there. I mean, they all have their problems uh, and their issues. But the Lord was with them. They're not perfect men. Uh, but the Lord still worked in them to save and deliver, to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. That was what their purpose was, deliverance, all the days that they are the judge. And notice the reason why. But the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Didn't I say the past two Sundays that God is not moved? Probably what this means here is that Yahweh changes his mind. And it's not that he actually changes his mind, but it is speaking in the manner of men and speaking about the goodness of God. Numbers 23 says that he is not like the son of man who changes his mind. So how do we reckon with these passages? That's where theology is helpful. That's where we use the clear passages, like a doctrinal text, an assertion. He does not change. Helps us when we come to a narrative when we come to an unfolding, uh, uh, um, um, a description of what is happening. And so it highlights the goodness of God. He changed his mind with respect to disciplinary judgment. Yahweh doesn't kick them out of the land till later on, but he still judges them, but he also shows them that he is a God who is good. And remember, God in his goodness, the way we see his goodness, we see his love is when he dispels the misery of his people. That's where we see that. It's his good towards these wicked people that he delivers them, but he's not moved by anything in himself, but it helps us. It speaks in the manner of men. It is accommodation to us to help us see the goodness of God. Gill says, The Lord being merciful had compassion on them when they groaned under their oppressions and cried unto him. Then he received their prayer as the Targum, and sent them a deliverer. And so did what men do when they repent of a thing, change their conduct. Thus the Lord changed the outward dispensation of his providence towards them according to his unchangeable will. For otherwise repentance, properly speaking, does not belong unto God. He turned from the word he spoke, the threatening he had denounced. And so the people, so Yahweh is good, he is kind, he is gracious. But, verse 19, and it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. I know uh, Gil just talked about repentance, but again, I don't think repentance is going on here. We're going to see it is their distress. It is their groaning, not repenting, but their groaning with all that they're undergoing with respect to the, the oppression, with respect to the harassment that they receive, they're crying out in pain. And Yahweh is still good. I mean, if you read the Old Testament and say that there's no mercy and grace, you're clearly not reading it properly. I mean, we see Yahweh's kindness, I mean, throughout the entire Old Testament, especially into the New. He's the same God 
who is merciful and gracious. And even here, again, they're groaning as they're oppressed, not repenting, yet the Lord still raises up deliverers for them. The Lord still raises up judges to help them and bring them up out of that suffering that they are enduring. I mean, isn't this a picture of salvation? I mean, were you looking for God? Were you seeking him? Were you hoping to find him? No. Christ died for his people, and it's God who saves us. He is the one who makes us born again when we were once under the wrath of God and children of wrath. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive. Did we make ourselves alive? No. That's what God did. And we've been seated in the heavenly places because why? God is rich in mercy. I mean, it magnifies the goodness and grace of God when we see the wickedness of Israel, yet he still raises up a deliverer. And then in verses 20 through 3, 6, after we see what's going to happen, so we'll see that throughout the, 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 this highlights the summary of the cycles that'll happen. Again, it's sod, right? Sin, oppression, deliverance, not sword. Sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance, it's sod. I guess it could be sogged, sin, oppression, groaning, and deliverance, but we'll just stick with sod uh, for now. Uh, but the Lord still in, is going to uh, uh, give a test of Israel's faithfulness. Verse 20. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because this nation, notice this nation, not my people, this nation, uh, has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their father kept them or not. They're going to be a test for Israel. There is, uh, they're going to be a snare to Israel, but they're also going to be a test for Israel as well to see whether they will walk in the ways of the Lord. The Lord does that, doesn't he? The Lord leaves tests for his people. And so verse 23, Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So it's punishment for transgressions, but also a test as well. He won't drive out those nations. And this continues into chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had formerly not known it. Certainly taught how to engage in warfare could be in view, but especially the significance of the warfare. What did the warfare mean? What was the purpose of Israel going in and breaking down things and destroying and pillaging uh, the, the Canaanites in the land? It was, A, as instruments of judgment. I mean, God had judged the Canaanites, and even God was long-suffering with them. If you go back all the way to Genesis 15, uh, the reason the people don't receive the land yet, or Abraham doesn't receive the land, is because their sin had not been complete. It had not been overflowing. It had not been ready to be poured out. Which is interesting because the bulls in Revelation talk about the pouring out of sin, don't they? When they're overflowing and then they, they're ready to be poured out. That is a, an apt image to describe God and how sins build up. And so God uses Joshua, or Joshua and the people to bring judgment upon them. But also as a fulfillment of the promises to 
Abraham. That was the purpose of the warfare, to be set apart as a people, to take the land God had promised, that the people might be a different people. So they might know this warfare. They might know how certainly to engage in warfare, but know the significance of warfare. I was reading Fox's book of Christian Martyrs, or however you say the title with that, but he's talking about the downfall of Rome. You know what led to the downfall of Rome? One thing, the people got soft. I mean, they were hanging out in baths, but they hired out their, their military work to others, and they just weren't prepared to deal with the invaders when they came, and when the invaders came, the people that they hired would you know, turn on them. I mean, people grow soft. It's usually how you know, civilizations kind of you know, descend. It's when people grow soft and stronger, uh, mightier men come in and take them out. It makes me a little bit concerned that we've all grown a little soft, right? I mean, that TikTok and all that sort of stuff and Facebook and we're all kind of roly-poly and that sort of thing, but, you know, not as hardened maybe uh, with war. I'm just kidding. I don't know what's going to happen, but but you just see the civilizations kind of how they fold, but unfold. But this was meant to test them that they might know warfare, but we see that they do not. So the nations that remain... Five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. They were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So lots of disobedience sets up a test with respect to the people. Will they keep and complete the test? No. Verses 5 and 6. I mean, again, look how quickly. Here's the test, here's the failure. It's like how quick they descend. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 6. They took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. They were not supposed to intermarry because there's no such thing as conversion dating. That cannot happen. And that did not happen under the Old Testament as well. If the people were, people were supposed to marry within their clans, especially, but especially within Israel, we see this with Othniel. He marries within uh, his clan. He marries Aksa within his clan. But the people of Israel in verse 6, they do not. They give their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. They made covenants with the people as a whole. And we see that, that uh, it manifests in how they engage in marriage with the people as well. Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. Israel is supposed to be a people that are set apart. Israel is supposed to be different than the nations around them. That's why Yahweh said in Deuteronomy, when you go in there, here's what you do. Not like the other nations. Not like the other nations. Not like the other nations because of the wickedness that they engaged in. And here we are, we see, as Daniel Block says, the Canaanization of Israel. I think that is an apt description of what happens in Judges. The Canaanization of Israel. Rather than being a set-apart people, the holy people of God, they become like the Canaanites who dwelt in the land. And that's why faithfulness is important. Certainly we have a faithful God, but even the people of God must be faithful as well. That is dependable according to what Yahweh had said. And the people failed miserably. 
So that's why there's some good application to the New Covenant era. We are redeemed in Christ. We are saved in Christ. But remember, we have been set apart. Right? That's what circumcision is. Our hearts have been set apart. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. But even the church itself is a people that have been set apart. 1 Peter 2. We are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The church itself is meant to be different. The people of God are meant to be different. The uh, people of God are meant to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. This land that we live in, we are called exiles in this land because we are citizens primarily of heaven. And so we are to be separated from the world. And what I mean by being separated from the world is uh, not sinning with the world. I don't think we should be Hutterites. I don't think we need to go out in the boonies to try and get away from sin because we have that thing called the flesh that always lurks. That is never a good idea. That's why the Bible says we live in the world, not of the world. That's why Jesus prays, I pray that, Father, that you do not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's why it's good to have regular jobs. It's not wrong. Your vocations are good. We need solid Christians to honor and glorify God in various what we call secular jobs. The word secular is not bad. It just means this world. And there's blessings that God has given to us for this world that are not part of the world to come, the sacred. And so it's important that we do not blend the two together. It's important to recognize that we are citizens of two kingdoms. You probably thought perhaps I was going to go there. We are citizens of Canada, citizens of this common kingdom, but we are also citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And one day we will no longer be citizens of Canada, but we will be citizens of heaven forever. But the people of God, though we live in the world, must not sin with the world. The people were meant to be different. And certainly we see this in 1 Corinthians 5. There's ever a passage to go to to like knock down any Hutterite argument. What does Paul say? He, I, 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 I command you, I charge you, not to associate with the sexually immoral, with extortioners, with the covetous, and with idolaters. But then he goes on to clarify what he means by that very thing. And I think it illustrates the point I'm trying to make and the point that I think Judges helps us see. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Then you would need to go out of the world. See, the point is, yeah, we don't sin with the world, but we have to have non-Christian friends too, right? I mean, that's how we can evangelize to uh, those around us. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, this is in the context of church discipline. Churches were supposed to be different. Churches were not supposed to be like the world. God's people sin and we have struggles and issues and that sort of thing. But the man in view was the man who had his father's... Sorry, we can do questions at the end. The man who had his father's... Pardon? Uh, Who speaks ill, who slanders someone. Yeah. Um, uh, But the issue in 1 Corinthians 5 is that uh, it's under church discipline. The man who had his father's wife. So it's church related in view there. 
If someone names a brother and is in persistent sin and immoral sin and scandalous sin without repenting, then there needs to be discipline. There needs to be church discipline involved, as Paul says, to put the evil away from among you. The church is supposed to be different. Even when we gather as the church, as an institution, when we gather on Sundays, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different from the world because when we come to church, we really are coming to heaven. We really are coming. We don't, you know, we, it's, we, don't, it's, we don't perceive it with our eyes, but we are really coming to heaven. And we are worshiping with the saints in heaven. We're worshiping with the saints around the world. We are worshiping God most high. It is meant to be different. It's not meant to be for the world. It's meant to be for God and for us. That's why it's important to get those things right, to understand the, the blessings that regular jobs are, but also understand the blessing that church is, understand the differences uh, with those types of things. But the point is faithfulness in this world. These church, people that have been set apart by God uh, who've been saved by God. The church is meant to be different, but as we live in the world, even though we might have similar jobs as unbelievers, we ought to still shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. And Israel clearly did not do that with the generation, the nations around them. They were to spread God's glory, and they did not do that very thing. But perhaps the most important thing to highlight in, these, in, this, in this chapter, I guess, in these verses is Yahweh's faithfulness. His faithfulness in judgment ought to remind us of his faithfulness to save. You know, that's why Lamentations 3, 22 through 24 is so encouraging. That's the text above, great is thy faithfulness. The one thing that the heading does not have, it says, though uh, uh, through the mercies of God we were not consumed. Through the mercies of God we were not consumed. And that's after 586. That is after Jerusalem is destroyed. But Jeremiah still recognizes as part of the remnant that God's mercies remain. Even though uh, uh, um, Jerusalem was destroyed, God did not destroy the remnant. And God's promises remain the same. And he is faithful to what he said he would do. That's the comfort this book is meant to highlight. It's meant to probe. It's meant to show what sin is. It's meant to cause us to stop and think but it's also meant to have us glory in God and recognize who he is, that he is a God who saves his people from their sins. Judges really is a book about the so great salvation that we have in Christ, pointing to Christ Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation. That's what the book of Judges is all about. We see a good summary of it here in Judges chapter 2. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your salvation. We know that sin is vile and awful, and yet sometimes we do not even think of it in such a way. We read about it, we understand it, we still engage in it, and yet we truly do not comprehend or understand the depths of our sin and what our sin deserves. And so we pray that you would help us come to your word and take your word uh, for what you've said in it. We are thankful that you are the God who is compassionate you're the God who is merciful and gracious, and we're thankful that we see that in the deliverance and salvation of your people. Thank you for the deliverers you uh, raised up in the book of Judges, and we're thankful that they are types of Christ, who is the one who came to save his people. Thank you that he is the one who defeated sin and death. He is the one who crushed the head 
uh, of the serpent, that we might have life, that we might walk with you, that we might dwell with you. And we're thankful that his blood was shed, and his blood is the blood of the new covenant uh, that shall not be broken. And thank you for your church. Thank you that you've called us and set us apart. Thank you that you've called your church uh, to be a city on a hill, to be different than the world around us, especially as we gather, but also uh, as we walk in this world to shine as lights. We pray that you'd forgive us for the times we do act like the world and sin with the world. We pray that you'd wash us afresh in the blood of Christ, but help us to be um, faithful in whatever calling uh, you've called us to. Thank you that you teach us the dignity of regular jobs, that you teach us how we can honor you in regular jobs, and uh, that you um, help us and give us the strength that we need uh, in this world in which we live. So please never leave us nor forsake us. Give us aid, give us strength, help us as we go into the world. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.